The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. It made me happy to hear all those announcements, all these things that the IMC is doing. And I'll echo what Hillary said about Happy Father's Day for those of you who are fathers or for those of you who have fathers. (laughs) And the solstice is coming up, all kinds of good stuff here in the summer. So for those of you who don't know, I'm Diana Clark, as uh, Martha said there at the beginning, and it's a delight to be here with you all. Some of you may know that I teach on Monday nights, so here I am on a Sunday morning instead of a Monday night. But today I'd like to share a little bit about a sutta, my story specifically that's in a sutta. And maybe I'll start by saying, uh, Gil and I taught a sutta study course for, ended up being almost two years, it just ended. And a theme that we kept on pointing back to in so many different ways, a theme was the importance of direct experience. Like, what is happening right now, this moment? As opposed to our ideas about it, as opposed to some philosophy, as opposed to some mystical or metaphysical ideas, just this, you know, encouragement to come back. What's actually happening in this moment. And it was quite something to see just how this showed up in the suttas in so many different ways. And I would say that a big part of practice is learning to make this distinction. You might think, well, that's obvious. I know what I'm thinking and I know when I'm sensing, but it turns out this can be even more and more subtle, the way that our concepts, our notions, our ideas, our beliefs, our views are a little bit different than what's actually happening in this moment. And of course we do this, of course humans do this, they have ideas and views and opinions, of course they do, we need them. But there's so much a way in which we are often living in our heads instead of being embodied. There's a way in that we are um, looking for the answers, we're looking for ease, we're looking for comfort, we're looking for happiness with something that's out there and out there being something that's going to happen in the future or in another setting or anywhere but here. Right? And out there, of course, only exists in our minds. Doesn't happen right here in the moment. If we're not looking for happiness and well being or end of suffering with something out there, then maybe it shows up as we're trying to figure something out. Like everything is going to be okay as soon as I solve this problem. Or maybe there's that problem, right? Have you noticed? It never ends, right? And of course we do this. Many of us in our professional lives or in certain education, we've been rewarded for this type of thinking. You know, just solve the problem, the next problem, the next problem, the next problem, and everything will be fine. And it's such a radical idea in some ways that this teaching is pointing to, can we just be with actually what the experience is here? And then, Phil, I'm going to ask you, can you put that volume just a little bit higher? I feel like I'm straining a little bit with my voice to make it just be a little bit louder. Thank you. 
So many of you will be familiar with this sutta that I'll be uh, talking about. It's the Bahia Sutta. And I'm going to kind of tell this story and then drop in some commentary as we go along. So the sutta begins, Thus have I heard. Many of you know this is the common beginning. And maybe we could say, once upon a time, you know, something like this. Thus have I heard. At one time, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove and Pindaka's Park. I'll say that so many suttas start this, like where the Buddha is, kind of giving a setting. Now, at that time, Bahia of the Bark Cloth was residing by Suparika on the ocean floor. So Bahia, he's in another place. The Buddha's over here and Bahia's over there. Bahia was honored, respected, revered, venerated, and esteemed. And he received robes, alms food, lodging, and medicine, and supplies for the sick. So they're kind of giving Bahia's credentials. You know, who is this person? He was a spiritual leader. A lot of people followed him, thought that he was a, a good leader. And these list robes, alms foods, lodgings, and medicine, those are the usual like the the list of four things that spiritual leaders need, and in particular, Buddhist leaders need. They would say they need those four things, and only those four things. But that's another story to talk about that. Maybe we'll also say that Bahia is not a Buddhist practitioner. And partly we know this because he's wearing bark cloth, so just in the same way that we can tell the difference between who's a lay person, who's a Theravada monastic, who's a Zen practitioner, who's a Tibetan monastic by what they're wearing, in the same way back at the time of the Buddha, we could also. But he's, so he's not a Buddhist practitioner, but he's this esteemed spiritual leader. And then coming back to the sutta. When Bahia was alone in seclusion, we can understand this as when he was meditating. When he was alone in seclusion, this line of thinking appeared to his awareness. Now, of those who in this world are awakened or have entered the path of awakening, am I one? He's wondering about his practice. He's wondering, I I think I'm awakened. Everybody else thinks I'm awakened. But am I really? So I appreciate this very much, right? But he's not complacent just because everybody thinks, oh, yeah, okay, this guy is a, a, a leader. He's a spiritual leader. Of course he has it all figured out. Of course he's not trying to solve problems or not in the present moment or whatever it might be. Like all of these things are kind of get projected onto spiritual leaders. But he wasn't buying all of it. He had this question, am I really awakened? And importantly, he allowed this doubt about his practice to be there. He didn't immediately push it away. He didn't immediately start thinking of other things, you know, distract himself. Or he was had this willingness to stay present to that experience of having this doubt, which you can imagine was an uncomfortable experience to say, well, everybody thinks I am, but am I really? Maybe this is 
different than having some ideas of uh, this imposter syndrome that sometimes, or maybe it is the same as an imposter syndrome that sometimes happens with people feel like, well, if people really knew me, they wouldn't think what they think about me. Maybe Bahia is doing this. Of course, I don't really know. But his willingness to stay present and to stay open, not to just collapse and close down when there's this doubt about his practice shows up, this willingness allows another voice to enter. So a continuation of the sutta. Then a deva, who had once been a relative of Bihiya's, compassionate and desiring Bahia's welfare, and knowing with her own awareness the line of thinking that had arisen in Bahia's awareness. So this deva knows what's going on in Bahia's mind. The, Bahia, the deva went to Bahia and on arrival said to him, You, Bahia, are neither awakened nor have you even entered the path to awakening. You don't even have the practice whereby you would become awakened or enter in the path of awakening. You can imagine <laughs> he is like this, wow, okay. So here we have the Adeva meeting uh, the Bahia in this uh, sutta. I don't know exactly what devas are. There's uh, different ways we might understand them. Some of them have these disembodied entities. One thing that I do know that in all the sutta's teachings, the devas are just like humans in the sense that they are not awakened either. They're not completely, they're not, you know, uh, like they're not like other Buddhas or something like this. But Something I appreciate very much, and this is by Douglas Phillips, who's another Dharma teacher who teaches both in this tradition and in the Zen tradition. And the one way that uh, he considers this deva is by the role that she plays, rather than what exactly a deva is, what's the function in the story of having a deva come and meet uh, Bahia. And Douglas Phillips has this idea that the deva is the embodiment of feminine wisdom. Of course, I kind of like this. (laughs) Being a woman myself, I like this. But there's a way in which we can imagine sometimes uh, there's this masculine side of us that's trying to go get things, make it happen. And then there's the, we might say, right, this is a gross generalization, of course, right? Gross generalization and not accurate, but it's a way we might think about what the role of Davis is. And then there's also kind of this feminine wisdom that's like, wait, is that the only thing that there is? Is this going and getting things? And she like challenges Bahia with this brutal honesty, right? This is kind of painful. Like she's just cuts to the chase. Nope, you're not awakened and you're not even going to get awakened. So telling Bahia that despite his years of practice and despite he has all these admiring students, he's not even a beginner on the path. And another way we might think of this idea of the feminine wisdom is that 
there's sometimes making this distinction between masculine or feminine, no matter which gender we are, that there sometimes are aspects of ourselves that we're cutting off a little bit, that we're ignoring, not paying attention to. We could just drop this idea of feminine or masculine. There's just often parts of us that we are trying to avoid, that we're trying to you know, pretend aren't there and maybe even secretly wish that they'll go away. So this is one, Douglas Phillips, is one way that he's interpreting this deva. But no matter how we think about it, we might notice that maybe doubt has arisen in your practice too. Maybe you've had some ideas like, am I doing this right? Everybody else seems like they're awakened or on the brink of awakenment, and I'm here struggling with uh, being lost in thoughts or whatever it is that we might be struggling with at the moment. So we might have doubt about our capacities. We might have doubt about the teachings. What's this idea of devas? might have doubt about the teacher. Do they really know what they're talking about? Does she really know what she's talking about? Or maybe we've had expectations about, you know, the results of this practice. We had this idea, okay, I'm just going to learn this meditation practice. Everything is going to be easier. My life is going to be better. And maybe it hasn't turned out exactly the way that you were hoping or wanted it to be. So maybe in some ways we're kind of like Bahia. But there's something here that what do we do when we have these doubts for our practice or we have some indicators that we still have some work to do? There's two ways that we could do this, that we could approach this when this doubt arises. One is to go down the path of resignation, Self-judgment, despair, bitterness, blaming, disdain. Like, there's all kinds of words I could use here. And sometimes we might travel some distance down this path before we realize this actually is leading to more suffering, not to less suffering. This isn't making things better. To have this blaming or collapsing or resignation. That's one way to go. Chances are all of us do some version of that, and I know I certainly did. Certainly earlier in my practice, I I would just get angry at the teachers, these poor teachers. They didn't know what I was projecting onto them. Like I just thought, I don't know, I just thought it was their fault somehow that this was so hard and I didn't know how to do it or I was getting lost or having difficulties. I thought if they would only be better teachers... (laughs) Now, I'm one of those teachers, right? I can tell you. <laughs> we don't have all the answers for everybody, right? We have to find our own way. Of course we do. Of course we do. And that's the second path, or that's the second response we could have when we have all this response, when we discover that there's some difficulties. We could, rather than the path of blaming or self-judgment, we could go down the path of practice, That is, we could bring attention to our experience at that moment. 
this is what doubt feels like. This is what blaming feels like. This is what despair feels like. This is what feeling confused and angry and not even sure I want to do this practice anymore feels like. It feels like this, and it's uncomfortable. So there's a way in which we can just bring our practice to our experience, which, to be sure, it might be the precise thing we don't want to do. But this is what's being asked of us, not to be somebody different, not to have different experiences, but to be with what's arising as best we can, as best we can with whatever's arising. So if we do have some doubt about our, not only our experience or about the teachings or the teachers, what can we do? We can be with our experience, but bring it with a sense of curiosity. Do some investigation. Talk to a teacher. Read Dharma books. Listen to Dharma talks. Talk to other people. There's so many ways in which we can maybe share our experience in a way that feels comfortable for us, that is a part of the practice I would say for me, I certainly would not have stayed with this practice if it weren't for some friends that I had along this Dharma path. To share kind of (laughs) difficulties and after Dharma talks to talk about things like, what? I didn't get it. Did you get it? You know, this kind of thing. Or to just like share ideas. And maybe the last thing I'll say about this, that this, um, when we're having difficulties to engage with the practice and to bring some curiosity about it, maybe some of you will recognize this as investigation, Dhamma Vichaya. And many of you will know that investigation is a factor of awakening. Like it's an integral part of this path towards awakening. So it's not like something that we do on the side until we could get back to the real practice. It is the practice to bring some curiosity, some, some just being present, like what, what's going on here to what's actually happening? Okay, to get back to the sutta, Bahia. So the David just told him, okay, you're not awakened and you're not even going to be awakened. And I give Bahia a lot of credit because here's what happens next. Without hesitation, Bahia asks the deva, but who in this world is awakened or has entered the path to awakening? And she said, Bahia, in the northern city of Savati lives the Blessed One, the Buddha, a rightly self-awakened one. He is truly awakened, and he teaches the Dharma that leads to awakening. Then Bahia, deeply chastened by the deva, left Saparaka and traveled all the way to where the Buddha was traveling, with where the Buddha was staying. Put this in context: this is thousands of years ago, and the distance between where Bahia was and where the Buddha was is over a thousand miles. Right? He had to walk. Right? Maybe he had a chariot part of the way or some of the way. I don't know, but a thousand miles is a long time. Right? Before there's roads or pavement's not even 
doesn't exist yet. You know, this is, but here he undergoes this. He has this commitment and he's willing to travel this distance. In my mind, this, this uh, in, adding this little detail into the story is pointing to the, the amount of commitment that Bahia has. Like he really wants to get awakened. So, I, uh, so but he, he doesn't defend or rationalize uh, his, but everybody else thinks I'm awakened. Are you sure? <laughs> Instead, he says, well, if I don't have it, where can I find it? And then he goes to see if he can find it. So he travels to where the Buddha is and going back to the sutta. There, Bahia found a number of monks doing walking meditation outside, He went directly up to them and asked, Where, venerable sirs, is the Buddha staying? I must see him immediately. He has this, you know, urgency. And then he was told that the Buddha had gone into the city for alms round, right? Of course, the monastics every day are getting alms. So the Buddha wasn't there, the place where other monastics were. He was in the town. So Bahia hurried, hurried immediately to the city where he found the Buddha on alms round. The Buddha was moving with great calm, his mind at peace, tranquil and poised. This is how Buddhas are. Bahia approached the Buddha, threw himself to the ground before him, and with his head at the Buddha's feet, he said, Teach me the Dharma, O blessed one. Teach me the Dharma, O Holy One, so that it will be for my long-term welfare and happiness. The Buddha replies, This is not the time, Bahia. We have entered the town for alms. So in an irreverent way, in my mind, he's saying, Buzz off, I'm on my lunch break. (laughs) Come back later. I'm sure the Buddha would be a little bit different, but you know that's kind of what happened, right? And the recognizing right, that this time the Buddha only ate one time a day, right? So he needs to eat. He needs to have a meal every day. But but he pleaded with the Buddha a second time. But Holy One, it is hard to know for sure what dangers there may be for the Buddha's life or what dangers there may be for my life. Please teach me the Dharma, O Blessed One, so that I may be happy and free. So Bahia is saying, no, 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 teach me now, because, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. Again, the the Buddha tried to put off Bahia. And he's saying that it wasn't the right time to teach because this is the alms round. So Bahia is persistent, he has a certain amount of diligence, but he also recognizes, you know, impermanence. This recognition that you know we're not guaranteed a next moment. None of us are. Not even Buddhas. Even though we might be thinking, okay, I'll be doing this later. Later, everything will be fine. Later, I'll figure that out. Later, I'll practice. Later, I'll be with my present moment experience. But he has enough wisdom to recognize, no. We, we don't actually know what's going to happen the next moment. So he's, but he is respectful, but tenacious. 
So the sutta continues. But he pleaded his case a third time. And this is a common theme that we see in the suttas. It's very interesting. And I don't know the origins or the story around this, but it's common that if you ask a Buddha three times, after the third time he will relent. Just keep that in your back pocket. The next time you meet a Buddha, you can (laughs) ask them three times for something. But he pleaded his case a third time. And this time the Buddha relented and said, well then, Bahia, you should train like this. In the scene will be merely the scene. In the scene. In the herd will be merely the herd. In the sensed will be merely the sensed. In the cognized will be merely the cognized. So the Buddha is pointing to just being with the present moment experience. Cognized, we could have that stand for all, whatever mental events are happening in the mind. Sensed, we could say that as a shorthand for any senses in in addition to seeing and hearing. So when seeing or hearing is happening, just to be only seeing or hearing or sensing or having mental events. We might say that uh, a big part of practice is discovering all the extra quote-unquote things that we do besides just being with our experience. Sometimes the experience is uncomfortable and then as we spoke about earlier, there might be this, but I I don't want it to be here. And then there's a whole story making that happens. Many of you might be familiar with this idea of papancha, right? This mental proliferation that often starts with something's really pleasant or unpleasant. Then there's a way in which the mind wants more and it starts to make a story about how it wants more. I want this or I don't want that, or this reminds me of the time that, you know, X, Y, Z, or this means something about me. This often happens, right? And then we're no longer with the present moment. Instead, we're with what's off lost in our stories. So the Buddha's point to the importance of just staying with the present moment experience. So then the sutta continues. It's more than just being with the present moment experience. The Buddha says, and when you have trained in that way, in the scene will be merely the scene, in the heard will be merely the heard, in the sensed will be merely the sensed, in the cognized will be merely the cognized, then, Bahia, there is no you in connection with that. And when there is no you in connection with that, there is no you there. And when there is no you there, there is no you here, nor yonder, nor in between. And just this is the end of suffering. 
upon hearing this brief explanation from the Buddha, Bahia's mind was immediately freed from the defilements from grasping and he became an arhat. So you might wait and wonder, like, wait, what? (laughs) What happened there? What the Buddha is pointing to is that imputing a a sense of self or having this self-concept is extra. And it's associated with suffering. So we might consider like the Buddha's description of when the seeing is just the seeing or the hearing is just the hearing might be a description of what it means when there isn't this self-concept that's getting overlaid on top of our experience. It's this idea of that there is a there's a pattern of experience, but there's no entanglement with it. There's no papancha that's happening after it. As an example, you might have noticed that sometimes during meditation sessions, the most peaceful, the most delightful part of the whole meditation session is when the bell rings at the end. Because at that moment, like there's a little, ah, and there's any doing that had to, was being done, like there's a meditator here that's trying to meditate, or I'm meditating. For that moment when the bell rings, that sense of, oh, I, I quote unquote, have to meditate gets put down. There's this kind of this relaxation, this little bit of a, just an opening, like, oh, okay, now what's next? I finished that. But even before there's the, I finished that, that moment, there's this, it can be this peacefulness. At the next meditation session, notice what happens. At the moment when the bell rings, there often is this opening, this relaxation, this ease. Because at that time, there's like the mind isn't like doing anything. You're not trying to meditate. You're not trying to be a meditator. Nothing needs to happen right at that moment. And it might just be a flash or a flicker. But just notice how at that time there's this peacefulness or this delightfulness. But not only is there no longer this sense of somebody who's doing this meditation... But at that moment, also the reactivity and the measuring has been quieted or dropped. There's often such a subtle way. In fact, it might be subtle and so constant and familiar, we might not even recognize it. But there's a way, when often when we're meditating or we're trying to meditate, there's this subtle way in which there's a... I like this more than that. Oh, it was better yesterday. What am I going to do tomorrow so I can have this experience again? Or I don't like this as much as that. Right? There's this subtle measuring or comparing or a sense of me trying to make things happen that gets tangled up with our experience. And what the Buddha is pointing to is that's extra. We don't actually have to do that. 
that doesn't need to happen. In fact, that can get quieter and quieter and quieter. And usually this is how it happens is it's uh, this extra, doing the extra is on a spectrum. Sometimes it's so obvious, like, I don't like this, please make it a go away. I hate this. When is that tank bell going to ring? And there can be a really strong sense of, I want something in particular to happen. Or there, it could be really quiet. Just every now and then there's a thought that uh, floats up like, oh yeah, this is nice. I hope it stays like this. Wow, look at me, I'm meditating. It can be something like this. It can be really, really strong or really, really subtle. It's not a binary on or off when this, uh, this extra is added. So this reactivity, this um, measuring, this entanglement is caused, we might say, by the self-concept that there's this idea of a self that because the self it wants things to be a particular way, wants things to be pleasant and comfortable. And it's this way of trying to bolster and protect this notion of this core or this notion of an essence that underlies suffering. And whether that suffering is just stress or uncomfortableness or just flat-out awfulness, it's this self-concept at the beginning, at the this at the sense of this being at the core that is the source that's fueling the reactivity it's fueling the suffering so whatever is happening in whatever moment in each moment whatever is happening this can be the entry point of practice learning to live fully in the life that we have, not in some imagined future or remembered past, but living to just be here. Oh yeah, this is sensing. Feels like this. Seeing. Seeing is like this. Hearing. Hearing is like this. Whether you're in a meditative state, whether you're in a meditation posture, whether you're just washing the dishes or driving, whatever it might be, whatever your experience is, this can be a doorway to practice. And just to be with the seeing or the hearing or whatever mental experience is happening. And freedom is possible right there, at that moment. We don't have to wait for some imagined, you know, perfect conditions. Whatever is happening, right there, we can be with the experience. And maybe it's just a moment, a flicker of a little bit more ease. But this is exactly how the practice unfolds, is with a tasting or recognition of, oh yeah, there's a little bit more ease this direction when I'm just with the experience. There's less ease this direction when I'm adding on all the thoughts and ideas of how I should be or how this experience should be. 
So being with our experience and the life we actually have can be the doorway to greater freedom. Thank you. So I wish you